So it is uh, November 2nd, it's 2014. Our message is called Marks of the Chosen. I wanted to share with you a couple scriptures. You can turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. When you get to 1 Thessalonians, find the first chapter. And uh, just hold there, because I want to read you a quote. How many of you know who C.T. Studd is? I was talking with a friend of mine, a new friend, the other night at an evangelism event at some apartments. And um, I got on the subject of C.T. Studd, and you know what happens when that happens. I, I went and dug up my favorite C.T. Studd quotes. So if you don't love him yet, you will love him. Are you ready for the first studly quote of the day? Oh, no, what's wrong? Y'all sleeping? Are you ready for the first studly quote? I got to say, this is, this is close to the best. C.T. Studd wrote this while he was in a tent in Africa. Christ's call is to save the lost, not the stiff neck. He came not to call scoffers, but to call sinners to repentance. Not to build and furnish comfortable chapels, churches, and cathedrals at home in which to rock Christian professors to sleep by means of clever essays, stereotype prayers, and artistic musical performances, but to capture men from the devil's clutches and the very jaws of hell. This can be accomplished only by the red-hot, unconventional, unfettered devotion in the power of the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? Amen. I don't intend to bore you with three points in a poem. I don't have any jokes to tell you today. And I'm aware how serious of a Sunday it is. Most of the congregations in Houston this day are standing against an evil edict from a corrupt mayor. This morning, I don't wish to address the lost outside of the building. I want to address the lost inside the building. I want to address the saved inside the bed. I don't want to preach to who is not here today. I want to preach to who is here. Can somebody say amen to that? In 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, slide your finger down to the fourth verse, and we're going to begin there. In your bulletin, we put six subheadings. We don't normally do that, but this morning before worship, I knew what I was preaching on. That's an unusual event for us. And because I did, I wanted you to be able to follow along. We are now speaking of conviction. In 1 Thessalonians 4, or 1 and verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God. Somebody say, I'm loved by God. That may be hard for you to believe this morning. Maybe you've done some things that make you not feel loved by God. Maybe the devil has been in your ear telling you you don't even belong here. You can just go ahead and tell him to get the hell out of your head. Because that's where he belongs. He speaks hellish language. He causes hellish results. And the sin that he promotes makes your life a living hell. So we're just not going to listen to him this morning in the name of Jesus. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. What a statement. You were chosen by the living God. How do you know that? Well, because you're here. Nothing in this creation happens that God did not determine to happen happen unless it's sin. I don't think you sin when you walk through the door. So I'm going to say it's divine appointment for you to be here. If God determines the times and places men would live and work, then He determined that you would be here because He has a message for you today. You are chosen and you are loved. Because our gospel came to you 
Not simply with words, but also with power. There is something that is masquerading as the church that has a form of godliness, but there's no power in it. You don't feel anything in it. You're told not to feel anything in it. It's simply based on intellectual assent. But the power of the gospel shows up in the changed lives of its recipients. Power over sin, power to change, power to walk in a new direction, power to love the unlovable, power to do the impossible. We all believe that with God all things are possible. Well, when a person belongs to God, in that person all things become possible. Somebody say amen. Amen. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. With the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. When I hear these three words, power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, these are the marks of those who have been chosen by God. The power of God has made an indelible mark on their life. They can never again turn back. They can never again accept low living. They can never again accept something false because they've received something that is pure. Have you been touched by the power of God or with words only? When we say the Holy Spirit, is this simply liturgy to you? Or do you have a relationship where the very Spirit of Jesus speaks to you, enlivens His Word to you, leads you? As many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. It is not enough to simply say we love Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus, the divine presence of God must lead our lives. The marks of the chosen show up in power. They show up in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when God has touched you in power, when He's put His Spirit in you in a way that has changed your life and is leading you in a new direction, you develop deep convictions. In your 20s, you may not have cared about anything. If you're in your 20s now, you don't have to wait till 30 to care about the world around you. I remember my generation... Voted for a man because he played the saxophone on Arsenio Hall. That was the depth of our conviction. We thought if the man had played a saxophone and looked cool, then let's try him out as president. I can't tell you what this generation has done. The history books will record it. Deep convictions accompany a touch from the Holy Ghost. You cannot have a revelation from God without having a response to that revelation. I don't just feel strongly about pro-life because I think it's right. The very spirit that God put in me demands that I fight against injustice. The spirit that he put in me demands that I stand on convictions. When you want to find out whether you're in the faith, ask yourself, Is there power over sin in my life? Is the Holy Spirit leading me on a daily basis? Do I feel interaction with Him? And when there's a separation, do I feel that loss? And do I have deep convictions? You know, we live in a country where most people say that they're Christian. But most have serious doubts about their neighbors. So if you say you have deep convictions... What would those who know you say about you? Would they say that you have deep convictions? We need to be careful that we do not practice data denial. 
That we don't say God knows my heart when we don't know our own hearts. You know a tree by the fruit that is on that tree. Do deep convictions characterize your life? Does the leading of the Holy Ghost characterize your life? Can you say that you were born of the Spirit of God in power? And if you can say those things, you wear the marks of the chosen. When C.T. Studd was talking about the essentials for Christian ministry, I have yet another quote from him. I hope you don't get tired. Are you bored with me this morning? The best training for a soldier of Christ is not merely a theological college. They always seem to turn out sausages of varying lengths, tied at each end, with the glorious freedom a Christian ought to abound and rejoice in void from their lives. You see, when in hand-to-hand conflict with the world and the devil, neat little biblical confectionery is like shooting lions with a pea shooter. One needs a man who will let himself go and deliver blows right and left hand as hard as he can hit, trusting in the Holy Ghost. It's experience, not preaching, that hurts the devil and confounds the world. The training is not that of schools, but of the market. It's the hot, free heart, not the balanced head that knocks out the devil. Nothing but forked lightning Christians will count. A lost reputation is the best degree for Christian service. Somebody say amen. Amen. It's not so much the degree of arts that is needed, but that of hearts, loyal and true, that love not their lives unto death, loving and large hearts, which seek to save the lost multitudes, rather than guard the 99 well-fed sheep already in the pen. In this congregation, we value what we can send. We value who we can reach. What we see makes no difference to us. If you are taking up a space in here today and you never have any intention of serious discipleship for Jesus Christ, then give up your space. We're going to need it. Our heart's desire is to see men who have been touched by the power of God, who are led of the Spirit of God, and they've developed such deep convictions that they're done with low living. They'll never turn back to weak and miserable principles. I hate sin, and I hate its effects. I hate it when I do it, and I hate it more when you do it. It's terrible. It ruins lives. Oh, but righteousness... Righteousness can fix your situation and begin to give hope to those around you. And before you know it, it's like yeast that's worked its way through the whole loaf. If you don't believe me, why do your lost relatives call you when something bad happens? Why do they ask you to pray when they've lost all hope? They know that you have something they don't have. We can say, well, they know where we stand and we know where they stand. Oh, don't settle for those kind of battle lines. We were called to change this situation. We don't just go to the Andes Mountains. We go to our neighbors across the street. We don't just go to those who are nice and respectable. We look for those who are most certainly not. Oh, what were you when he found you? My, my, my. Friends, let us consider what the power of the gospel, moving of the Holy Spirit, and deeply held convictions can produce. In 1 Thessalonians... Look at the second verse. We always thank God. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Oh my goodness. Do you have the kind of faith in you that has produced work? 
Let the whole church world argue about the relationship between works and faith. I say faith produces work. And you can know if a man is in love with the Lord and really trusts Him by the work product of his life. Jesus called it the fruit on the tree. When someone tells you, judge not, lest you be judged, look at them and say, twist not, lest you be Satan. They've insulated themselves from the conviction of the Holy Ghost. But when a man trusts the Lord with all of his heart, in spite of himself, in spite of his failures, in spite of the trials, the work product of his life is a legacy that shows that he loves the Lord. Work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. Why do we work? Why do we labor? Why do you go to the mountains when you've got a perfectly warm bed at home? Oh, because He loved you. He demonstrated His love for you. And how can you not demonstrate His love to them? The book of Romans says, Know this, while you were still a sinner, He demonstrated His love for you and that while you were a sinner, He died for you. We cannot sit back and wait till they become acceptable. The poor of the world cannot get to this building. So those inside this building must go to them. You say, why? Well, our labor is prompted by love. He loves you, so you love them. You say, they're not very lovable. Neither were you. I still might not be. I'll leave that up to you. We have works that are produced or prompted from our faith. We have a labor that has been promoted by our love and your endurance inspired by hope. If you live in the Christian life long enough, you're going to have some serious setbacks. People are going to let you down. That's what they do. They're professionals at it. Jesus Christ never let me down, ever. But those who have stood for His name, they sometimes let us down. You might feel as if you live in a world without heroes. There is one hero. His name is Jesus Christ and His mighty Spirit will dwell in you. You may only have a couple chances in your life to live like a hero, but every day you can choose to not be a coward. Stand for Him. Stand for Him. Stand with your neighbors. Stand in the marketplace. Stand in your workplace. You say, I might lose my job, then you might need to lose your job. The church of Jesus Christ is foremost radical. We ought not be tamed and Islam might not need to look as if it is more serious than Christianity. I don't fear the terrorist. Islam is evil. Their prophet is a pedophile. It's wicked beyond belief. And I don't mind saying it publicly all day, every day. The gospel of Jesus Christ will set men free from such wickedness. But you ask, why does it spread? Aside from the fact that it appeals to sensuality in the base nature, it spreads because its adherents are serious about it. Learn from this, Christians. I've been all over the world now, and in valleys where they've never seen electricity, I still found Mormons. In valleys where they don't even have clothes. Valley of the Elephant in India, Yanipalam. We found Coca-Cola and we found Mormons. We cannot let the enemy be more dedicated to his cause than we are to ours. Our convictions need to run deep. Are you with me? 
You endure because of those deep convictions. You endure because whether you feel like it or not, you know that it is the right thing to do. And sometimes doing the right thing will eventually yield the right feeling. We cannot sit back and wait until we feel like it. They're dying every day. If you heard that in our parking lot, a family of three died, you would call it a tragedy. But most of the world's population cannot know that Jesus Christ walked on the planet and we sleep fine at night because it feels like a statistic. I would like to shake you today. I would like you to consider the way that we live today. I would like you to consider where your convictions ought to be today. One man said that he returned from the mission field, was standing in an airport, and saw Americans lined up at Starbucks for their $5 coffee. Yeah, we don't have any real needs, do we? When you can pay $5 for a coffee, and an average wage in India in a day is less than a dollar. This says something, doesn't it? We think that we're hurting because we valued the wrong things. We think we're in a depressed economy because we feel entitled to everything and we don't at all want to have to suffer for anything. But the kingdom is based on being crucified with Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 10, 24. Say there when there. We have a clear choice before us. Your life is either going to be defined by what you accumulate or what you distribute. In Matthew 10, 24, Jesus said this. A student is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household? This about defines our relationship with the world. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. We are at war with the prince that they unwillingly serve. Ephesians 2 speaks of those who are unsaved. It's under the power of the prince of the power of the air, filled with a spirit of disobedience. And we are intent to say they're just pretty good people. And maybe this is part of the problem. We think pretty good people add a little bit of Jesus to their life and suddenly become Christians. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that we are monstrous sinners filled with a spirit of disobedience. But when we come to our senses and say, have mercy on me, he changes the inner being. He changes the outer being. He changes the whole thing. When we believe on him, we become sons of God, something altogether different. We live in a day where this truth is being eroded in our culture. Most believe that they are pretty good people outside of Christ. This is our fault. We've lost the courage in the name of being loving. We're doing something that is not loving. We are not calling it like it is. We are not drawing clear and distinct lines. If you don't know what you are, you don't know what you need to become. Oh, the pathway to Jesus Christ is in the death of ourselves. Look at Matthew 20. Pick up with me in the 24th verse. Say there when you were there. Matthew 20 and 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. 
Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the Master. We are the students. And the Master spent His life washing feet. He spent His life serving the least. How dare we take exalted titles? How dare we put on our license plates things like apostle and bishop and brag about airplanes that we fly? This is devilish. Jesus Christ came to serve the least. And He's called us to do the same. We are students or disciples or Talmudim. This means we want to imitate our teacher for the point of becoming exactly like Him. How can we do such a thing? You find those that others don't love and you love them. You find those without hope and you give them hope. You go to the ends of the earth at great expense precisely because it's great expense. You demonstrate the love of Christ the same way it was demonstrated for you. God could have saved the entire world by playing a 3D movie in the sky, but He didn't choose it. He could have saved the entire world through dream or vision, but He didn't choose it. You were the instruments of His glory. He chose to send people of one color to people of another color precisely because they were different. He chose to send people from one area and one language to people to another area and another language precisely because they were different. The point is not that one is better than another. The point is that when we have nothing in common, Christ is all we have in common. Look with me at John 13. In verse 1, say there when you were there. It was just before the Passover feast. Oh, friends, what happens at the Passover feast? This is when Jesus would become the Passover lamb for the world. This is when the blood of Jesus would be provided as a ransom for many. This is when he would express his desire that Paul wrote to Timothy about that all men be saved because he would give his life as a ransom for all men. How dare that some don't even know. We have work to do. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Come on, somebody say full extent. Full extent extent is a word called telos. It means the goal. It means the sum of. It means the culmination, the point of. The culmination of Jesus' love is displayed in what happens here. And what happens? The greatest among them takes on the position of a servant. He lays aside all authority, all reputation. He lays aside all the dignity that he deserves. And he washes the feet of those who did not deserve. Oh, church, what is he trying to teach us? Look at the 12th verse. When he had finished washing their feet, 
he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? Would you have? I wouldn't have. He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should learn and believe. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Church, when we do the works of Jesus, it shows that we trust him. When our labor is prompted by love, it shows that His Spirit is in us. And when we have deeply held convictions that cannot be uprooted even under the threat of torture, it shows that we are His sons. Oh, the world is waiting for such a display. They've had enough weak, dead Christianity to inoculate them from the real thing. They need to see the real thing. And it's our job to show them. Oh, when faces are being slapped and no one turns the other cheek, but you do, this shows that you're born of heaven. You didn't just accept a creed. In 1337, while we're here, I want you to see this. It's hurtful. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. How many of you have said that you would lay down your life for the Lord? Oh, it cannot just be three of you. You claim to be Christians. It is the pledge of every Christian. Peter said a good thing. Can we agree? How many have said it? But look what Jesus knew. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you disown me three times. This was not Peter's end. He ends up healing people with his shadow. This proves something. You cannot stand without the power of the Holy Ghost. You cannot do it. Many have promised a good thing. They gave their pledge on that day. But when it comes down to it, they don't deliver. I don't want to be in that number. So I'm hopelessly dependent upon His power now. I'm hopelessly in love with Him now. I practice it every day. Not the death that I will die one day, but the thousand deaths you die every day when you take the lower position. When you would rather be wronged than have someone think badly of Christ. We feel persecuted if someone gets our parking place. Church, we were called to lay down our lives. What better way to express that than missions? My family stopped taking vacations a long time ago. I vacationed one year in a place called Padre Island. And I had no idea that some 30 miles away, children were eating garbage in a garbage dump. I can't go back to that place. I can't go swim in those waters and sit on those same balconies knowing that 30 miles away, children are eating garbage. I can't do it. Does it make a difference when you get to know someone? I mean, when a stranger walks by, you might not care that much. But when you get to know him and he's not a stranger anymore, suddenly you become invested in their lives. The king's king is invested in their lives. They're his friends if they're not your friends yet. We have to care. 
I heard a church speaking about compassion fatigue. What a weak and miserable principle. Your compassion should be boundless. It should be boundless because the Spirit of God is in you. It's an inexhaustible source of compassion. Turn with me to John 10. Let us look at this choice before us. In John 10, look at the 14th verse. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. Say it. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. The question is, do you own your life or does He? And if He is our Master and we are His students and the world treated Him that way and He willingly allowed it, what right do we have to protect ours? What right do we have to guard ours? Are we not also called to lay down our lives? Turns me to the Gospel of Luke. Lest you think I'm cherry-picking Scriptures. In Luke 14, pick up with me in verse 27. Somebody proudly shout there when you arrive there. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now that's not what they tell you. You're told that if you close your eyes, raise a pinky, that that's it. That's all there is to it. No counting the cost. No dying on a cross. I tell you that we must walk as Jesus walked, but His Spirit will help you do it. He says clearly in the 27th verse, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Look at verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give everything, give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Somebody say that's extreme. He said the kingdom of God would be like a merchant who found a pearl in a field and went back and sold everything that he had in order to obtain it. If you still have things that you believe are yours, then you cannot have the pearl. That's a competing interest. He said, well, what, are we supposed to walk around naked? No, he knows exactly what you need. But everything you have must belong to him. And everyone's good at saying it. I heard two pastors arguing in this town because one of them preached on the street and the other preached in the cathedral. And the one in the cathedral thought himself better than the one on the street. And he pulled up to the street ministry in a brand new car. It was yellow. It was audacious. The most conspicuous car I've ever seen. And he says, ah, the Lord gave me that car. We've all said things like that, haven't we? It's the Lord's car. The street preacher said, fantastic. I don't have a way to get to the airport today. I would like to borrow it. He says, you can, it's my car. Well, I thought it was the Lord's car. I belong to the Lord. 
You belong to the Lord. Why is it okay for you to use the Lord's car and it's not okay for me to use the Lord's car? And the cathedral was caught. It's easier to say it belongs to the Lord than it is to give it to the Lord, is it not? We talk about Mount Moriah moments where Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain and you forget that Abraham didn't know how the story would end. It's easy to pledge Isaac on the mountain if you believe God won't really do it. It's much harder if it may be required of you. Church, when you say that everything you have belongs to the Lord, does it really? And how would you feel if when you got home, that big glowing box on the wall that none of us worship was gone? I don't want to beat you up, at least not anymore. Then I'm already beat up. I do want you to examine your deeply held convictions. There is a warning in the book of Luke that is so shocking, no wonder it's not preached on very often. Look at the 16th chapter and the 25th verse. 16th chapter, 25th verse. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. What would happen if we stood before the Lord and like the rich man in this story, he said, you spent your life with your nice things. You didn't care about Lazarus sitting outside your gate who had nothing. You wasted your life on you. See, we live in a day where the gospel has become about you. How to get you more successful. How to get you more blessed. How to get you happier, fatter, dumber, and tithing more. But the gospel's always been about them. It's never been about you. You were a means to them. The gospel has always been about them. When He saved you, it was so that He could use your life to reach them. He bought the nations. And He doesn't have them yet. But He does have you. So are you going to help him get them? Isn't that really the question? What is your life going to be about? You could be a financial planner or you could be a plumber. But what is your life really about? Is it about harvesting the nations or is it about warming a pew? Sitting on your salvation and feeling good about yourself. This is a unique congregation. Most of you are in missions regularly. All of you who attend regularly give sacrificially. You are the most generous people that I know. But we need to consider the pool that we're comparing ourselves to. Because in India, they think nothing of going without food for weeks that someone else might have something. They think nothing of the kind of sacrifice that we would never dream of doing. I don't want a thing from you. I want you to know the power of God. I want you to be led of His Spirit in a courageous way. One that dares all, risks all, and you feel the approval of the heavens upon you. And it creates such deep conviction in your life that you could never be bribed away. You could never be talked into something base. You know, you don't catch the princes of Saudi Arabia digging in these dumpsters back here. If you understood who you are and what's at your disposal, you would not be looking for spiritual junk food. You're better than that. 
The Holy Ghost says you are better than that. He's called you to higher ground than that. Better work than that. Better reward than that. Better eternity than that. In the name of Jesus, a better resurrection than that. I want you to become dangerous to the enemy. You know, when we say dangerous to the enemy, my mind always drifts to something that you have the hardest time preaching about. A demon should never be the hero in a story. Demons are dogs. They're the dogs of the spiritual world. The last time we were in Peru, those cowardice things left people while we were still preaching. I'd never seen that before. People that had never heard the name of Jesus. When the presence of God came in the room as we were preaching, demons left them. Who was in Peru last year? Raise your hand. Am I lying? Can you fake something like that? Hey, any of you can speak two languages at the same time in two different voices? And they left at the name of Jesus. You know, the man with the experience is not at the mercy of the man who merely has an argument. I don't have to wonder whether it's real. The power of Jesus Christ is so great that those things cannot stand in His presence. Having said that, in Acts 19, the 13th verse, I have a really unusual story. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Why not who I preach? It sounds like they had a kind of second-hand knowledge of Jesus. It sounds like the only thing they knew about Jesus was what someone else had told them about Jesus. Sounds like they had no real experience with Jesus themselves. It sounds a lot like most churches I've preached in. Oh, friends, is that not worth asking? If you eliminated everything from your life that you were told about Jesus and you only had what you personally experienced with Jesus, how long would that list be? You want a deeply held conviction? You want the power of the Holy Ghost? You want a changed life? You must encounter Jesus and not settle for men. The only purpose for this pulpit, this whole setup, is to help you encounter Him. Shame on men that are willing to let you become dependent upon them. The church of Jesus Christ is not to be used, not to be fleeced. Church of Jesus Christ is to serve Him. There is a day coming where purity will be demanded. There is a day coming when goats will be outed. There is a day coming when the Lord Himself will deal with those who have abused His church. And the strictest judgment will fall on those who have done it from inside the church. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It always makes me snicker. I watched a little girl in Romania toss around about 12 people until the Spirit of Jesus showed up in power. How many of you were in Romania? Raise your hands. Am I lying or did the little girl get set free? Got free. 
I learned profanity in four languages that day. But at the end of it, the little girl got free. How is it that the demons knew who Jesus was? Well, his foot is on their head. How is it that they knew who Paul was? Paul had been advocating the kingdom of God. He had been advancing it in the name of Jesus. He had been forcing God's kingdom into their territory and taking it from them. He was dangerous to the enemy. I would love that you were dangerous to the enemy. Most are content to sit back as biblical confectionary. Learn just enough to appease our conscience. But God called you to be a foot soldier in the war of Christ. He called you to go into the enemy's territory and take what he has held. Oh, church, you can certainly do it. I have watched... Gabe, how old were you when you were in Romania last? Quickly, son. Eleven. I have watched 11-year-old children command spirits that have been around for thousands of years. It doesn't take strength. It doesn't take wisdom. It takes a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have one? Why was Paul so dangerous to the enemy? Why did they know his name? (laughs) As one pastor said, Paul was the Christian the devil's mama warned him about. (laughs) Why is that true? He had a ministry philosophy and you can find it in 2 Corinthians, the 4th chapter and the 11th verse. If you don't think I'm lying to you, then you can listen and don't have to turn. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life at work in you. Oh, hear me, when you have no concern for your life anymore, not because you despise it, it's a gift, and it can't really be taken from you, because if you're struck down in this life, you have all eternity to rejoice over it. When you really believe such a thing and you stop protecting your life, you become dangerous to the enemy. When everything that is at your disposal is actually at God's disposal, you become dangerous to the enemy. Why has the devil allowed churches to grow the way that they have that are so self-centered? All they do is preach and appeal to greed because they are not dangerous to him at all. They pose no threat to him at all. You will never see deliverance happening there, at least not real deliverance. You barely ever see real salvation. What you see is an amusement park that people buy tickets to. That's no threat to the kingdom of uh, of hell at all. But you find a couple men who love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. Oh, I don't know. Find 11 scared Jewish boys. The kind that are hiding in an upper room. And you fill them with God's presence and they'll turn the world upside down. They'll shake it to the place where when you write a check today, you're giving testimony to their work because it's been 2,014 years since the king they proclaimed entered the world. Islam's got nothing on true Christianity. Oh, that we were more serious than them. Oh, I have your attention now, don't I? This was my hope. 
It was my hope that rather than in a bald of offense and tears and snot running out the door, that you would have the courage to be confronted with what could be called bare-knuckle gospels. This is the gospel. The gospel is for the poor. The gospel is about denying yourself and exalting their need. It's about caring more about the man beaten down on the road than you care about what happens to you if you help him. The gospel is about being like Jesus. And it is courageous. And it is bold. Oh, that the church was not so flaccid. That the church was not so weak. The church of Jesus Christ is not. And that might be how you tell the difference between those who are His and those who just heard about Him. See, there is something strong inside of Christians. We give birth to our own kind. Genesis 1.21 says that each gave birth according to its own kind. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds you find this everywhere in the bible when when noah took them on an ark in genesis 7 and verse 14 you see it written this way they had with them every wild animal according to its kind god put certain genetic barriers even in our species there may be adaptation inside of a species you get a a dog that's half a dog tall and dog and a half long that's a dash hound Or you can get a dog that is half a dog short and two dogs tall, a 15-inch beagle. I mean, you, you get adaptation within species, but you cannot get new species from other species. When you go to Peru with us sometime, you may have the privilege of seeing a mule. Mules cannot reproduce. They're the product of a horse and a donkey, but they cannot reproduce. There's a reason for that. God put boundaries. I don't want to talk to you about kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, and species today. I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God. You cannot go to a diesel mechanic and learn nuclear physics. And you can't go to a scientist and learn about the things of the Spirit. We give birth according to our kind. So often we're sitting somewhere that is comfortable for us, that is convenient to us. We drive across town to get our hair done where we think they do it the best, but we, we attend worship wherever they can move us in and out like cattle, entertain our children and make us feel good about ourselves. You will be whatever it is that you are participating with. Are you hearing me? You need to ask yourself a question. When you look around the congregation of the saints, do you admire them? Do you want to be like them? Do you see broken, ordinary men that are moving in extraordinary ways? Or do you even know them? See, everything gives birth according to its kind. John 3, 6 says it this way. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You want to walk in holiness? Hang around those who are holy. You want to learn what it is to backslide? Hang out with those who are backslidden. You find somebody that calls themselves a carnal Christian, they might as well hang a tombstone from their neck. Run from such men. 
Did you know that the Bible says we cannot even eat with those who are sexually immoral and call themselves brothers? Oh, how we ignore these scriptures. So that's very judgmental. Paul said it. I didn't. With all of my heart, I want to pursue righteousness along with those who are pursuing righteousness. Can you say amen to that? Mark 3 Verse 13 says this, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. Say, he wanted me. How do you know he wanted you? Because you heard his call. Some of you heard his call today at the altar. Some of you, it's been many years. Some of you have had him on speed dial. He called those he wanted. He wants you. He doesn't want you to put you in a spiritual safety deposit box and call you captured. He wants you to put you to work. He wants you to put you in His service. He wants you so that He can empower you to be His hands and feet. You are His body. What would you do with a growth on your body that would not obey the rest of your body? Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to Him those He wanted and they came to Him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with Him. Oh, I bet you thought the apostles were designated to write the Word or the apostles were designated for some special hat or maybe a special picture on a wall in a a cathedral somewhere. He designated men that He wanted so that they would be with Him. And He called you for the same reason. He wants you, and He wants you to be with Him. It's not enough to know about Him. You know, I can tell you everything about Bo Jackson back in the day. I tell you his height, his weight, what he ran the 40 in. I used to know how many yards he rushed for for a game, all those things, but I never met him. You go ask Bo Jackson about me, he'd say, get out of here, I never knew you. It's not enough for us to have tribal knowledge of Jesus. He wants us to be with Him. Do you want to be with Him? I want to be with Him with all of my heart. I want to be with Him so much that if I feel His Spirit moving from here to there, I go there. i got to tell you, i got one of those foam mattresses. Memory foam. And I like it. I'm having a hard time getting out of it. We stay up way too late in my house. And sometimes morning comes way too early. It's not so hard to get off of the dirt floor where we're going. The reason that you do the things that you do is you want to be with Jesus and He wants to be with them. Are you hearing me? He wants to be with them. We'll move heaven and earth to unite a lost parent and lost child. You might even shut down your shopping experience and help them search Walmart for that lost child. The heavens shut down... (laughs) says, hey, stop what you're doing. Quit it. Nothing else is any more important than finding that lost son of mine. It feels fine as long as it's somebody else's son. How would you feel if it was your son? Because God says he's mine. I just got to tell you the truth. If my little Abby, stand up, Abby. Boy, isn't she pretty. If my little Abby was lost and you wouldn't help me find her, I don't know how long we'd be friends. I mean, do I not have one father in here that understands you don't get me here? If I say, hey man, my little girl is lost. She's out there and I haven't seen her and she could be hungry. 
She could be her. I don't know who's around her right now. And you're like, I'm playing golf, man. I don't think we'd be friends very long. Wow, let that settle in for a minute. I could live with the fact that maybe you're on oxygen. Maybe you got a serious prayer life and you have trouble walking from the house to the car. I could live with that. I'd say pray that we find her. But if you were able, what if I was down to my last dime? And I said, I heard that she might be across town, but I, I, I'm walking and it's going to take me all day. Can I borrow your car? Can you put some gas in mine? Can, and you wouldn't do it. How long do you think we'd be friends? Church, we need a whole new view of missions. Many of you have it. I've watched you cancel your cable subscriptions. I've seen you change everything about your life. Some of you, like me, buy all your clothes at Walmart. There needs to be a reprioritization. We need to put ourselves last and everyone else first. Amen? We're going to give birth according to our kind. I want to tell you this. We are going to need to close soon. There are forces that are moving against us. There are forces that are moving against all real Christians. The kingdom of God moves forward at great cost. I want to read you something out of Micah. We prophesied about it today. I didn't plan for that. It just happened. Micah 2 and verse 12. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. For God's flock to follow Him, sometimes someone has to break open the way. Somebody comes to the hard and fallow ground. Somebody comes and experiences collision so that immovable objects will be moved. And then the Lord leads His people out of their bondage. The Lord at their head. John the Baptist was such a man. And in Luke 16, 16, we have what a a rabbi would call a remez, a hint at a previous scripture and a spiritual truth. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached And everyone is forcing his way into it. Friends, we have to be forceful with the kingdom. You say, I thought Christianity was was pacifist. You thought wrong. We contend with spiritual powers. We contend with our own flesh. We contend with adversity of every kind. We just do not do battle as the world does. And we do not do battle as if it is against flesh and blood. But it takes a forceful man to deny himself. A forceful woman to say, my children might need that, but I feel the Lord saying to give it to them. Forceful people are forcing their way into the kingdom. So I thought it wasn't about human effort. You remember that your labor is prompted by love. 
It's the product of your faith. When the Lord says go in that direction, it requires labor, force to go in the direction He told you to go. i got to be honest with you. Pastoring is the hardest thing that I've ever done. There's nothing else that comes even close. I was there when Jennifer gave birth naturally to one of our children. I was there praying the night Teresa did it with her last child. i got to tell you, that might come close. It's hard to advance the kingdom. And so most don't. Most appoint some leader somewhere to do it for them. And they tip God and send their little peace offering and feel good that they've anointed a champion somewhere to do it. The problem is is that God called you to do it. And He called you to be forceful. He called you to follow Him out of the bondage, the Lord at your head. What if He called you even to be the one who breaks open the way for others? A kind of trailblazer. So, well, who would follow me? Well, start leading and let's find out. Do you think that I was an ideal candidate? Wade became the principal of the school I almost got thrown out of. I wouldn't have picked me. Where are you at, Matthew? Matthew, would you have picked me? I stepped on his hands in the football pile. I I had my feelings hurt. Because he was righteous and I wasn't. I called him dirty names. I was even a racist. Nobody knew what Matt was, but I guessed all kind of things. I wouldn't have picked me. But when you've been touched by the power of God and His Holy Spirit enters you, you develop convictions that you never had before. You go in directions you never would have went before. You have the marks of someone who has chosen And God will do more with an ordinary man yielding to His extraordinary power than He would ever do with those that are more qualified. We have some great examples. We really do. When you think about men that have gone before us, we have really no excuses. When you think of the cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, it is extraordinary. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. This will be the end of our service coming from this passage. Thank you for not applauding that. Are you all okay? Do you have a few minutes more? We go hard in this church and a day of 20 minute and 30 minute sermons, it's not unusual for us to go an hour and a half. It might be because I don't know how to preach. I don't know. But I'm the guy that God stuck up here. If you want to hear somebody do it better, come Wednesday night. Alex is preaching Wednesday and it'll be glorious. You want to see something amazing? Come next Sunday. Wade will do a fantastic job. I wouldn't have picked me. I might have been God's last choice, but I'm going to do a first class job. I will not be denied because I don't deserve to be here and I don't feel entitled to be here. I don't feel like God owes me something. I feel like I owe Him everything. And boy, we could learn something from that. Say, why go? Because nobody else volunteered. I got to tell you, everybody we're taking to Peru this year, everybody is in their early 20s. I'm the only geezer at 40 that is going. My hope is that they fall so in love with it that they see the kingdom of God breaking forth that they're addicted to it like me. I'd like to move on to some flatter countries. 
So as fat and unqualified and everything else as I am, I will drag myself up and down those mountains because Jesus is worth it. Oh, that you would believe He's worth it. I don't know what He might speak to you to do. But whatever He speaks, let me tell you, He is worth it. We have a little saying in this church, the answer is yes before we know the question when it comes to Jesus. Are you in 2 Samuel 23? I'd like to close with these guys. We'll speak of men that are better than this one and that might inspire you. When we're looking at 2 Samuel 23, you need to know that these men came to David while he was in a cave at Adullam. He drew to him those who were discontented and those who were distressed. But they didn't stay that way. They're the very same men we're reading about in 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty men. Jashab Bashabeth, a Tekamite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Jashab means sitting in the council of God. That's what his name means. And his mama named him well. Because when you sit in the council of God, it doesn't matter how many come against you, you believe no task is impossible. If you've heard your father, then all other calculations go out the window. Because if he says it, it's as good as done. It just takes some labor prompted by love on your part. Probably about the moment you're failing and going to give up, he will come through and deliver you. It's a way for you to show him that you trust him more than you trust yourself, that you believe he's more capable than you are incapable, and it glorifies him. Joshab means sitting in the council of God. So he raised his spear and in a single encounter killed 800 men. Anybody seen it? Don't raise your hands. Seen a UFC match. It's not easy for two evenly matched men to overpower each other. One against 800 He better have heard from God. Oh, I admire men like this. How about this guy? Verse 9. Next him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when he taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated. I want to tell you the men of God should never retreat. We might advance in a new direction, but we should never retreat. But he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. What makes a man stand firm when all others run? He must have tasted the power of God. He must have felt the Holy Spirit. He must have had a deeply held conviction that said, I will not yield to the enemy. This kind of conviction shows up when you're clicking in private. This kind of conviction shows up when you're filing your taxes. This kind of conviction shows up in the areas that no one else knows about unless you get caught doing it wrong. Listen to what the man did. But he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. You know, when you can do nothing else, You're in a great place. Cling to the Word of God. Have you ever worked on something till your hands cramped? I'm so glad for the invention of nail guns. First time I ever did a roofing project was with my grandfather. He's a wicked man. He could drink all day long in his 70s and work all day long. Working with him was incredible. I don't know what... I don't even know where to describe it. 
But after carrying all of those shingles up on the roof, I said, Grandpa, where's the nail gun? He said, you're looking at him. I was the nail gun. We hadn't finished so many squares and my hand was cramping around the hammer. That your hand would cramp around the Word of God when you became tired. Deeply held convictions that says, if the Word says it, that settles it. It is done. I will not contemplate things outside of the Word, no matter who advocates them. Oh, church, if we had that kind of conviction, then hell would have to fear us. Do you hear me? Hell has to fear the man of God that will not let go of the Word of God when things get tough and everyone else can run. God only needs one to stand. The question is, will it be you? You can move on to Shammah in verse 11. By the way, Eleazar, his name means God is my help. Turns out that when you sit in the counsel of God, all things become possible. When God is your help, you don't know what the word retreat means. Because God doesn't have to retreat ever. Next to him was Shana, son of Agi, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took a stand in the middle of the field. Come on, in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Shammah means astonishment, desolation, fame. It turns out that when you're astonished at the Lord and His fame, you'll lay down your life to defend the food supply of God's people. It turns out that when all others run, you'll stake your claim right in the middle of God's will and you will not back up. Oh, church, we could go on forever and ever. Benaniah is a man of God. Benaniah means built by Yahweh. Benaniah went down on a snowy day into a pit and killed a lion. I have no idea why. I guess because he didn't want to walk by that way and find the lion was no longer in the pit. Best to deal with sin when you find it. Not wait for some other day. It might sneak up on you. Then he goes and fights an Egyptian, quite a large fellow, really tall. The Egyptian had a club. Benaniah had nothing. So he took the club from the Egyptian. And he beat down that Egyptian that day. Oh, that we could take the resources that the devil would like to use to enslave people and beat him upside the head. You can take a $20 bill that somebody snorted cocaine through and you can use it to fund missions around the world. Church, all things are possible for us. It's not about the six who are going today. You know why I'm really doing it? I'm moved by love. I'm going because the five other men, four from our church and one outside, I want to spend time with them like Jesus wanted to spend time with His disciples. I want to see them fall in love with what I've fallen in love with so that it will carry on for generations to come. I'm going because a man from Romania who has nothing heard about last year's trip and he said, if you will accept me, I want to fly from Romania to Holland and from Holland to Venezuela and from Venezuela 
to Peru. The United States wouldn't even let him catch a connecting flight here. I don't care what the cost is, how many days I miss of sleep. If you will accept me, I want to go. When heaven's accepted him, how can we not? Church, our lives are going to be about accumulation or distribution. That's your choice. It's going to be about what you can consume or what you can contribute. That's your choice. We can stand around and wait for the generosity of a few or we can live with the sacrifice of all. That's the kingdom of God. I want to tell you that we have absolutely no plan. But I've heard the words of the generations before me. I have one more studly quote for you. Are you ready? Are you awake for it? Come on, somebody say, Pastor, I'm ready. It's just now 1230. That's one hour. We're used to more than that. I'm going to give you one quote and then we're going to pray. C.T. Studd wrote this after giving away his family's fortune in a single day. He wrote this at the height of his athletic prowess when he was a world-famous cricket player in the United Kingdom. He said that he would not work for glory that fades when he could have glory that was eternal. And he wrote this words to those who would listen. Too long we have been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting has passed. The hour of God has struck. War has been declared. In God's holy name let us arise and build. In the name of the God of heaven. He will fight for us as we for Him. We will not build on sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear, before the world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, and namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him and we will live and die for Him. And we will do it with His joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when we have come to this position, the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff and talk with dainty words and pretty thoughts of men. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Has the hour struck? Has the battle begun? 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Are you a part of his demolition team? Or have you been fighting for the wrong side? Church, you can walk into a building like this and say those people are neat. They're excited. That's really good for them. And go back to your life as usual. Or you can let this be one of those moments in time that you say, knowing what I now know, I can never live the same way again. You might be scared. Man, I'm scared almost every day. But I'm not so scared that I won't obey. My knees might knock together while I do it. But in the name of Jesus, He will help me do it. 
I don't know where your hearts are this day. I suspect that many of you love the Lord so much that there is nothing that you wouldn't do. And so you find yourself contemplating, Lord, what would you have me to do? I want you to feel no compulsion from anybody except the king. Some of you sit there and say, heard what you've said, but I'm just not sure I can do that. I want to assure you that none of us can. And when you bring that to him and say, I want to serve you, but I don't feel able. I don't feel worthy. He will take you who are ashamed, you who feel unclean, and he will seat you at his table as a king's son. And when you've ate the bread from heaven and you've had the supernatural substance of the Spirit, you will find that you can do things you never believed you could do. I want to say don't let anything hold you back. In the name of Jesus, you do what He tells you to do. And do not be denied. Could you stand to your feet?